You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. I'm glad you could join me for another Thursday afternoon where I take a little bit of time out of my day and come here on my YouTube channel and do a live question and answer program. Uh, we have few enough visitors to, to where I'm able just to take a look at the side chat window and respond to those questions and comments uh, the best I can. I am not able to get to every question usually that comes in. We try to make a record of all the questions and then come back to them later, maybe on a program that I have to record for a Thursday when I'm going to be out of town. So anyway, uh, this is something that we do regularly on Thursday if we've never been introduced before. Again, as I said, my name is David. I am a pastor and a Bible teacher, and I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful, and it's available absolutely free at EnduringWord.com. That's EnduringWord.com. You can also find it at Blue Letter Bible. Uh, That's blb.org, a tremendous Bible resource that, again, completely free there on the Internet. My normal pattern for a Thursday Q&A is I begin with a question that comes to me uh, from social media or from the YouTube comments or from an email. And this particular question that I want to deal with today comes from Svenja and Frieder in Germany, some wonderful friends that I am sad to say we weren't able to see this May. Usually I'm out to Germany every May for a conference that we've been doing for the last 12 or 13 years and uh, wasn't able to make it this year because of our global pandemic. But anyway, I was very happy to get this question from Svenja because I think it's a great question. And here it is simply, if I could simplify her question into one statement, it's simply this, who was the New Testament written to? Again, let me repeat that again. Who was the New Testament written to? And let me read you some of Svenja's emails. She writes this. After reading a lot of diverse commentaries in general, I noticed that it really seems to make a world of theological difference when you determine who the addressees of a New Testament letter are. It's almost like reading the Bible through certain theological glasses. If issues come up with a letter, for example, concerning the conduct of the addressees, those to whom the letter's letter's written, some commentators will almost categorically claim that those people mentioned are not real Christians, but only nominal Christians or unbelievers hiding out among real Christians, even though the text itself doesn't reveal a shift in addressees. One example of this would be the book of Hebrews with its five warning passages. Obviously, context is king, but if you are wearing a certain set of theological glasses, you are prone to be biased. Svenja continues and writes, Lately, I read a bunch of commentators who claim that all New Testament letters are generally written to genuine Christians, the Gospel of John being the only exception because the purpose of writing the Gospel is stated that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing him a life in his name. Of course, those are theological glasses, too. So here's my actual question. What is your opinion on this issue, and who would you say are, in general, 
the addressees of the New Testament letters. Well, again, Svenja and Frieder, thank you for your wonderful question. I think it's a great question. Just first to take a careful consideration. Who were the New Testament letters written to? Now, it would be easy to say, well, they were written to people in the first century. Okay, but which people in the first century? Were they written to um, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ? Were they written to Gentile believers in Jesus Christ? Were they written to congregations? Were they written to unbelievers? What, who is being addressed? Like I say, I think that's a wonderful question because as you stated, there is an important theological result that comes forth from that question. And there is some theological sleight of hand that can happen. What's sleight of hand? Sleight of hand is what a magician does when he makes something disappear. And sometimes theologians or Bible commentators kind of want to make problems disappear by simply saying, oh, well, he wasn't writing that to Christians. Uh, Christians would never struggle like that. Oh, uh, he wasn't writing that to Christians because Christians would never deal with that particular issue. Again, I can think that it is sometimes the way a magician makes things disappear with a trick with his hands. Now, let me give you a just kind of quick answer to the question and then talk about it using some examples. Um, I, I believe, first of all, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, those historical narrative books, I would argue that those were written to a general audience, to those who were believers and those who were yet to believe. Let, let me explain how. Because first of all, you, you noted very rightly in your uh, letter that the Gospel of John specifically is said to address those who have yet to believe or that people would believe. But I think there's also some fascinating internal evidence in Luke and Acts that Luke wrote those two books to be a defense or an information given to Roman officials before Paul appeared before Caesar in his trial before Caesar that Caesar that occurs after the end of the book of Acts. And, and I think there's some good reasons for believing that. And of course, that would mean that it was written to some a general audience, to believers and those yet to believe. And I also think there's other reasons to believe that in Matthew and Mark. So I would say that the Gospels and Acts were written to a general audience. Anybody who wants to know about this amazing man, Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. Then we come to the epistles or the letters. Those were written, I think, just most straightforwardly. I don't think we have to get too fancy with this. These were written to congregations and to individuals. This is the and to individuals parts. Timothy, Titus, Philemon, those are individuals. Now, it may very well be that those letters were also read to congregations, but the epistles or the letters of the New Testament written to congregations and to churches, and then the book of Revelation, I think is plain, was written also to congregations. It specifically claimed to be to the seven churches, and then, of course, we understand beyond that as well. Now, when I say to congregations, let me explain what I mean. I mean to gatherings of believers in the first century and beyond 
where we would assume that there are believers at all different stages of development. That's why when Paul writes to the Corinthians and talks to them about problems of spiritual immaturity or problems with false beliefs, I don't think he intends to say that every single person in the Corinthian congregation is at a particular low level of spiritual maturity or has embraced some dangerous belief, but he just means he knows that there are some present. The New Testament letters were written to believers in congregations at all different stages of development and perhaps to a few who attended the congregation who had yet to believe. Now, I think a good example of this we can take from the warning passages that you mentioned that are found there in the letter to the Hebrews. But again, I just want to say one thing. Before I talk about this example from Hebrews, let's just consider that the New Testament letters, when they were first written, would commonly be first read to congregations. Can, can you picture that? Can you picture uh, in the churches of the region of Colossa that there would be uh, a reading of the letter? Um, to the church at the Thess Thessalonica, there would be a reading of the letter in that congregation. Okay, that, That's the first setting. Now, we know that the letter to the Hebrews contains a few strong warnings against falling away, against leaving the faith. And, and I don't need to get into those um, passages right now, nor do I mean to make this a debate on once saved, always saved. Let's leave that aside for a moment. Now, there are some people who have said those strong warnings in Hebrews could not be addressed to believers because believers can't fall away. These warnings must actually speak to unbelievers present among the congregations. Now, I don't deny that there may very well have been some unbelievers present among those first century congregations. But I think that this approach, that actually the letter is speaking to just a few particularly unbelieving members among them, I think that that just doesn't take into mind the practicality of how these writings were first delivered. Can you imagine reading Hebrews to a first century congregation and saying, or implying this, okay, this part doesn't apply to all of you, just to a few of you in the back row. How strange that would be. How foreign that is to the New Testament context. So let me put it this way. Those warnings certainly had more application to some people in the congregation as compared to some other people in the congregation. That, that would be true both back then and today, now. But those warnings have something to say to every believer, something to learn from. Anything that makes us approach the scriptures with this idea that, oh, in this part of the letter, Paul would prefer that you close your ears and not hear it, you believers in the church. This is written just for few. No, everybody in the congregation has something to learn from 
these passages. So I would say simply this, in response to the question, who was the New Testament written to? Please be careful whenever anyone is trying to narrow the scope of the New Testament. This should only be done when the words and the context of the Bible demand it. Again, when somebody's trying to narrow the scope of the New Testament, be careful of this. Now, I'm not even including the Old Testament in this. That's sort of another conversation. Many of the same principles apply, but let's just talk about the New Testament. And I would say this, that there are some dispensationalists. Now, let me just say, I count myself as the dispensationalist, but that is a very broad category, very broad. And there are some dispensationalists with whom I do not agree with their dispensationalism at all, or hardly at all. Now, there are some dispensationalists who teach, for example, that the Sermon on the Mount is not for Christian believers. It's only for Israel. And let me say, I would disagree with that strongly. And I would regard that as something, something of a theological sleight of hand an attempt to make something disappear because it's theologically convenient, as is done in some other places. So again, Svenja, great question. Thank you for that. Blessings to you and Frieda and your whole family. Um, let me deal with one more question that came in uh, from a comment on a YouTube video. And I just want to deal with it because it'll be able to deal with it very quickly. Uh, it's this simple question. Um, Michael asked this question. Uh, Hi, Pastor David. I have a question here. How do we as Christians make sure that the pleasures of this world do not overcome our desire to meditate on his word? When I'm about to do something recreational, such as playing video games, the thought of reading God's word comes to my mind, and I feel I have to make a decision on what pleases God. Do you think God is unhappy when we choose to do recreational activity over reading his word? Many thanks for all you do. God bless. Okay, Michael, let me answer this question. And it's simply, is entertainment or recreational activity a sin? And Michael, let me just give you a quick answer to that. There is certainly a place for entertainment. I, I don't think we can deny that. Um, God made us as human beings entertainable. And I don't think it's a completely ungodly desire to be entertained. So there's a place for entertainment, but we would immediately acknowledge there's an even greater place for God's word. And so entertainment is fine as long as it's kept in its place. And is this not a very difficult people, a very difficult thing for people in our modern age to do? Entertainment is an idol in our modern age. And it may very well be that for a season, God wants a Christian to virtually avoid all kinds of entertainments, simply to break the power of that idol and to establish habits that are free from the idol of entertainment. So I can't say that entertainment in and of itself is a sin, but it can become a sin when it is an idol. Now, how do you know if it's an idol? Well, just start fasting from entertainment. How about that? 
I'm going to fast once a week or twice a week for a day. No of my usual entertainments for this day. Or if you want another demonstration, just limit your entertainment. Say, okay, video games. And look, I'm just going to throw a figure out there. So don't get caught up on my figure. Uh, video games for an hour a day. That's fine. No more than an hour. And those are ways to demonstrate to yourself that uh, entertainment is not an idol in my life. Now, your question also touches on something else. You say that you feel convicted that you should maybe give attention to God's word instead of the entertainment. Well, let's just make a discernment between conviction and condemnation. It's possible for a person to be condemned by Satan uh, when they're doing something quite legitimate. For example, sleep is legitimate. But it's possible, I know some people have undergone this, Satan has condemned them and said, you shouldn't be sleeping, you should be up praying and reading your Bible. Well, is there a place for sometimes saying, I'm not going to sleep, I'm going to pray? Yes, there's a time and a place for that. But there's also a time and a place for sleep. So pray that God gives you the discernment between conviction and condemnation. Neither conviction or condemnation feel good, but there is, I believe, a discernible difference in how they feel. Conviction will generally have the effect of pointing me towards the Lord. Condemnation will generally have the effect of pointing me towards myself and all the difficulties that go along with that. So um, I hope that helps you a little bit there, Michael, and I'm happy to deal with that question. Okay, let me go on now to our chat window and deal with what we can deal with here. Uh, Jane asks, Hi, Pastor David. Can you comment on why Jewish people have been hated and persecuted by so many segments of the world population over the millennia? Well, Jane, I can give you a quick answer to that question. Why have the Jewish people been so persecuted? I would say that it is far more than human prejudice and envy and, uh, you know, ethnic hatred. It's far more than that. The hatred that has come against the Jews over the centuries has to have a demonic origin. And I believe that. I believe that it makes no sense for humanity or so much of humanity to so hate the Jewish people uh, if there is not a demonic origin behind it. You see, I believe, before we talk about dispensationalism, and this is one of the things that makes me a dispensationalist, I believe that the Jewish people still have a place in God's unfolding plan of the ages. It does not mean that every Jewish person is saved. No, that doesn't mean that at all. And it doesn't mean that everything that the nation of Israel does or that every Jewish person does is right. It doesn't mean that either. But it just means that God is not finished with the Jewish people as they have a role in his unfolding plan of the ages. And sometimes that role that God has had for Israel, sometimes it has been a blessing to them. Sometimes it has been a great burden for them, but it endures until God's plan is complete. Well, I believe that because Israel has this place in God's plan, that indeed 
Satan has a particular hatred for them and wants to destroy them. So, Jane, I would just simply say this Jew hatred that we see existing through the centuries, it has a human aspect to it, but it also has a demonic aspect to it. Um, let me continue on. Uh, Christiana says, does turn the other cheek mean that sometimes you shouldn't report non-violent petty crimes like workplace discrimination or harassment or a boss who pays you under the table? Christiana, I would say that the command to turn the other cheek doesn't really have the things you spoke about in mind. Um, really, the idea of turning the other cheek as Jesus used that in the Sermon on the Mount, that is really focused, and we know this from the cultural connections of what it meant to strike a person on the cheek. The, the wording, the phrasing that Jesus uses there is very specific about what was understood in that day to be kind of like a insult slap. It wasn't a physical assault. J Jesus was not saying, if somebody hits you across the head with a baseball bat, then let them hit you across the head on the other side with a baseball. He wasn't talking about a physical attack, but about an insult. Um, you know, in olden days, uh, all I know about this is from cartoons. You know, you have the thing where the, the, the distinguished gentleman takes off his glove and then uses it to slap the face of the person he wishes to insult. It has something of that in mind, not so much a physical assault as an insult. And what Jesus is speaking about is when somebody insults you in this grievous public way, don't feel like you need a defense. Turn the other cheek. I, I do remember, though, a great story. I don't think I have it on my bookshelf behind me. But uh, there's a great story about an Englishman who was a former boxer named Richard Weaver. They called him Dick Weaver. This was in the 19th century. And he was out one day doing street ministry and somebody uh, came to him and started talking about turning the other cheek. And uh, it was a marvelous time. I'm just saying, hey, you know, there you are. You say you're Christian. What about turn the other cheek? How about if I smack you in the head and you can turn the other cheek? So Dick Weaver, the former boxer who became an evangelist, stood there and he said, go ahead, punch me as hard as you can. And the guy came up and he hit Dick Weaver with a closed fist as hard as he could upon the cheek. And Dick Weaver staggered back. And then he walked up to the guy and he said, now give it to me on the other side. And it is said in the story, I read it in this biography of Richard Weaver. It said that the man instantly gave his life to Jesus Christ at the invitation to strike the other cheek. Okay, so anyway, that, that's a story of that working out, but that's not really the intention of Jesus in that particular passage. So. The things you're talking about, Christianity, are things that probably should be reported. Um, sometimes we are instructed to overlook the sins and the faults of other people. And there's a time and a place to do that. One reason why we might not overlook something that somebody does when they sin against us is the knowledge that they may very well, matter of fact, they may likely be um, likely to commit that same sin against somebody else. For example, if somebody robs my home and I say, oh, I forgive you, 
I'm not going to call the police. I forgive you. You can go your way. That may feel like it's being very loving to that man. But I'll tell you who it's not being loving to. It's not being loving to the next person that he's going to rob. So in general, um, apart from a real leading of the Holy Spirit, these things that are in fact crimes should be reported. Uh, I'm not going to say that there wouldn't be a specific time and place where we should overlook a wrong because the Bible does speak about that. But I, I hope that's helpful for you there, Christiana. Okay, uh, Andrea says, Greetings from Israel, still here during COVID-19. I can't get home. I'm sorry to hear that, Andrea. My question is this. What was at fault or wrong in the hearts of Eve and then Adam that they paid attention to the serpent in the first place before the actual fall? Doesn't this show something about the nature of man before the results of the fall set in? Andrea, I would say not necessarily, but what it does show is that God created Adam and Eve and humanity, we would say, with the capability to sin and rebel. That's what it reveals to us about humanity. Now, if we wanted to get really technical, we could say that the first stirring of sin in either Adam and Eve was their dissatisfaction with what God had provided, which in a way provided a occasion for the temptation of the forbidden fruit. But even that, you would say, would be the beginning of sin. Although it's interesting that the Bible does not mark the origin of sin until the clear rebellion of Adam and not Eve. So because of that, I would say that this dissatisfaction would be a sense of falling short of the glory of God, but it was not responsible for the fall of the human race. So God created us with the capability to be dissatisfied with him, although, of course, only to find our true satisfaction in him, not apart from him. But I would say that instead of it being that God created us sinful or lacking, that God created us with the capability to sin or the capability to find dissatisfaction uh, with even the good things of God. Anyway, that's a good question, Andrea. I don't know if I've answered it well, but God bless you there in Israel. Agnes says, what happened to all the dead people and animals after the flood? Uh, Agnes, that's a great question. Of course, I can't give you a positive answer, uh, but I can give you this uh, for just kind of a quick answer to say that um, they just decomposed. And I don't doubt that the phenomenon of the flood and especially the great pressure of water that must have existed at the time would have made for a rapid decomposition. Um, there are some people who think that there are certain things in the modern world that go back to that, such as oil deposits, that, but I don't know anything about that. I've just heard people mention that from time to time. I would just say that they decomposed and they decomposed quickly uh, because of the nature of the environment at that time. Zachary says, we were attending a church for a while when one Sunday they had the youth pastor give the sermon. 
They referred to his pastor, and the sermon she gave was where our head pastor left off last week. We were a bit shocked should we continue to go to a church that allows a woman to preach to the congregation. The pastor made it sound like it wouldn't be the last time. Okay, Zachary, you're asking a question that actually touches on a great deal of controversy within the Christian world today. And let me just say that I'm not hesitant to answer it because it's controversial, but I do just want to acknowledge that there are people in God's family who would disagree with what I'm about to tell you. And that's okay. Uh, I don't regard them as enemies, even though I think that their um, approach on these matters uh, isn't helpful for the cause of God at all, that it actually takes away from any kind of disobedience does. Uh, but yet, even given that, I don't regard them as enemies, uh, just people who are not helping in a particular situation. So here's the answer I would give to you that. I would say, Zachary, you're right to be concerned about it. I would not overreact because I, I don't think, according to First uh, Timothy and the rest of the New Testament, and even some examples in the Old Testament as well, I don't believe that God has ordained for women to hold positions of teaching authority in his congregations. If you would like a greater in-depth teaching, my understanding of this, go to our YouTube channel, look up the series on 1st and 2nd Timothy and the relevant passage there in 1st Timothy chapter 2, and you'll see where I speak on that in much greater detail. But to bring it to a summary, I don't believe that God ordains for women to be in positions of congregational doctrinal preaching authority. I do believe that there is some difference of opinion among God's people as to exactly what that means. So for some people, it would mean never having a woman speak from a pulpit at all. Some people might say, well, as unusual circumstances or as a one-off thing, maybe we would allow it. Okay, I want to leave that discussion aside, but just say the principle, I think, is something to pursue. So if you can discern that your church that you're presently attending is against that in principle, and they intend to demonstrate that again and again, as you suspect in your question, uh, it's something for you to pray about, to find a, a different church. I, I would say this that we should be committed to a local body of believers. And unless God has given you a specific guidance by the Holy Spirit, somehow the Holy Spirit says, be a part of this particular church. Apart from a specific guidance, a general rule to follow is this. I'm going to go to the best church I can within a reasonable traveling distance, what I'm willing to travel. And what I mean by that is this. It's possible, Zachary, that even given this fault or failing, which I would consider to be on behalf of your church, even it still might be the best church for you to attend. And what I mean by that is maybe other churches in your area are even worse. So um, I would say that this is something by which we should say we should attend the best church that we can in a particular area. But again, I would recommend to you 
look up my video on 1 Timothy chapter 2, where I deal with the roles of men and women in the church. I think this is an important doctrine. I think this is an important practice for the church, and it's something for us to take seriously in our own day and age. I know that this in some sense will make me and some who agree with me like dinosaurs in a present age. People say, how can you believe this in this present day? Well, I sincerely believe it's what the Bible teaches. That's just that's just my sincere belief. So how can I believe anything other? I sincerely believe that God has ordained that it is only qualified men, not just any man, but only qualified men that should hold the positions of teaching and preaching authority and doctrine within a local congregation. All right, let me continue on here. Um, Christian says, hi, Pastor David. <laughs> Will God overlook, excuse me, I passed over your question. Will God overlook people's sin for people that died never knowing God or Jesus? For example, indigenous people of America. All right, Christian, again, this is a question where there are different opinions among believers on this. Let me give you my uh, understanding. I believe that the Bible makes it clear in Romans chapter 1 that God will judge all humanity by two revelations, by creation and by conscience. Every human being has had God revealed to them in some way. Now, if you're watching this video, you probably have an interest in the Bible, in God's Word, and I'm grateful for that. This is God's great revelation. This is the revelation that tells us more about God than we could ever know or imagine otherwise. But we also believe that creation tells us something about God, and even conscience tells us something about God. They're not equal to the Word of God as aspects of revelation, but they are nevertheless the legitimate aspects of revelation of God creation, and conscience. Now, I believe that if a person has never heard of God's greatest revelation in and through his word, never heard the message of the gospel, then God will judge them by what he has revealed to them in creation and conscience. Some people mean, oh, that means none of them will ever be in heaven. Other people say, well, perhaps there will be, but this is the principle to go on. God will judge people by what has been revealed to them, not by what has not been revealed to them. And then, of course, it's our job to get the message of the gospel out all over the world, all over the world, because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. Hope that answers that for you there, Christian. Tara says, God bless you. I am new, learning where to ask questions, is continuationism, cessationism, an essential belief? Can we be members of the same local church free to believe differently? Well, Tara, let me say, that is a question for the leaders of your congregation. Be because they're the ones who would decide what diversity of opinion they would allow in the congregation on that particular issue. And there's another thing that I would make a distinction of for me as a pastor. When I was the pastor of a church, I always made the distinction between um, 
what the people in the congregation believed and what staff and leadership believed. And I might have a much stricter requirement for belief in the statement of faith among those who would be on church staff and those who would be teaching others in the congregation than I would have for people in the congregation as a whole. So um, really, that's a question for the leaders of your congregation. It, it, I wouldn't say it's automatically a case that that should divide a church. Um, but if it is a passion of the pastor and the leadership of the church, that the church should either be definitely continuationist or definitely sensation, uh, cessationist, then it might make a difference even on the congregational level. Hope that's helpful for you, Tara. And God bless you. Welcome. I'm glad you've come and found this place. Um, conservative A says, um, greetings, Pastor Guzik. Thank you for your work. I was wondering if you are reformed because you do quote uh, quite often from Spurgeon, Calvin. I've been greatly helped by Washer, Piper, MacArthur, and you. Well, conservative, let me just tell you very frankly, very straightforwardly, I do not consider myself to be reformed in my doctrine. However, as you've rightly seen from the people that I quote in my online com commentary, there are many Reformed writers, preachers, commentators that I respect a great deal and have learned a great deal from. So while I do not agree with the five points of Calvinism, and that could be questions for another day, why I don't, what specifically I would have some kind of disagreement with, we can talk about that another time. But let me just say that, no, I choose to not define myself by any particular system of theology. To the best of my ability, I endeavor to have a biblical theology. Now, I know when I say that, that's frustrating to people who are Reformed or decidedly anti-Reformed. They say, David, our theology is biblical as well. And I understand why they say that. I'm not trying to say I'm biblical and your theology isn't, although I would disagree with their theology on different points. But I am satisfied with merely describing my theology as biblical. I understand that the Reformed guy says that their theology is biblical, and the Arminian also says our theology is biblical. I understand that. But I don't feel any need to put an additional indicator on my theological understanding, other than just simply to say, uh, I try to believe what the Bible teaches. And ideally, when I'm teaching on a, so to speak, um, uh, Calvinistic or Reformed passage, I'm going to sound like a Reformed guy. When I'm preaching on a, so to speak, Armenian passage, I'm going to sound like an Armenian guy, because that's just, I think we should teach the Bible as it is and not try to worry about forcing it into a theological system when it doesn't particularly seem to fit. So I hope that's helpful for you there, conservative. I, I don't consider myself Reformed, but neither should I say, do I consider myself to be anti-Reformed, as if I'm a crusade against Reformed theology, there's too many Reformed writers and pastors and preachers that I've learned a lot from. And so that's kind of my uh, my take on that. Um, Ruth, 
Gordon says, I am reminded of the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not evil. Well, that is very true, Ruth. It's true how the love of money, we have to put that in the proper context. Um, let me continue on here. Um, Hannah says, do you believe that COVID-19 is a means of ushering in the one world order? Are we about to see Christian persecution on a scale that we haven't seen in America before? Thank you. God bless you. And all I can say is I can't rule it out. I haven't seen enough to say that I can say for certain that this global pandemic is ushering in a new world order. But it's certainly, there's certainly some indications that it could be. Uh, I would just be reserved in my speaking about it until I would see more evidence, greater evidence of that. Um, so, yes, um, could there be coming persecution in America? It certainly could be. And I would say this, I, I, I don't want to be alarmist. I don't want to be dramatic in this sense. Right now in America, most people, not everybody, but most people feel that persecution of Christians is very far away. The common response to secular people is, oh, grow up. You're not being persecuted. Forget about that. You know, stop being a baby. Okay. And I get it. If you were to compare how people in America, what we think is persecution, what people endure in other parts of the world, you can't compare the two. But what you should not forget is how quickly and dramatically things could change. There have been particular points in history where things that people thought would never change changed very quickly. And it could be that way with persecution of believers. Um, you could say that there is certain groundwork that is being set for that now. So I don't want to be alarmist. I don't want to pretend that something is when it isn't. But um, things can change very quickly. All right. I'm looking at the time. We're going to go on and just take a few more questions, even though, uh, let's just see, Ruth says, the insight into the slap on the face is incredible. I've never heard that. Well, Ruth, thank you very much. And it's nice to see you over the internet again, Ruth. Um, Ruth says, I've heard that misuse thousands of times. I immediately forgave the person who struck me down with her car, but I sought legal help and compensation because I wanted her to change for her careless behavior so somebody else wouldn't get injured. And Ruth, I would say that that can be a perfectly legitimate Christian response, as you and I have discussed personally. Um, there is a place for bearing wrongs that have been done against us, but that's not an absolute. Uh, there is the proper administration of justice, and loving our neighbor doesn't just mean loving the person who harmed us. It also means loving others in the community to whom similar things may happen. And then there is, in the Bible, the principle of justice and fairness. Um, protections for these kinds of things. The, the principle of legal liability is built into God's law in the Old Testament. It's a proper concept uh, coming forth from the Word of God. Anyway, God bless you, Ruth. Joanne says, enjoying the study of John chapter 20, 
devotion and pain by Mary Magdalene, casting out demons by Jesus. Um, is this why some people make false relationships claims as if such love is impossible? Yes, I mean, it, it is. Um, uh, it, it's just an interesting thing to go through the Bible straight and direct, Joanne, and let it speak for itself and to realize that we really can have a beautiful, powerful relationship with the living God. Um, let me just conclude now, scanning over. Benjamin says, uh, blessings from Mexico, uh, conservative. Sorry to be saying you. How often? Okay, I do this program every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific time, whatever that is in your time zone. Um, and let me just say that uh, I'm glad that you can join me for these. I, I just want to deal with one more question. GMS says, please use scripture to answer the questions. Thanks in advance. Uh, GMS, thank you for that. I understand why you say that. But let me say, I'm doing this live question and answer pretty much free form. And I keep it moving without usually trying to refer directly to a lot of scripture. I'll make reference to it from time to time. Oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm paraphrasing scripture in my answers but, but I do this just for the, look it up on your own. God bless you for that. And if you have a question about, okay, well, David, you said this, what's the scriptural idea behind it? Feel free to follow up in the comment section to the best of my ability. I'll follow up and it's a fair comment for you to make. Anyway, so glad that you could join me. So uh, blessed by uh, the way you tune in and you're part of this. I suppose I'm supposed to tell people to subscribe and click like and whatever. Look, do it if you want to. But I'm grateful for what God is doing. And uh, thank you for being a part of it here at the Ministry of Enduring Word. Please remember to pray for our ongoing work. And I thank you for that. God bless you. And we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.